0: all of us make decisions every day in regard to authority. So those that are in authority play key roles in, in our lives and in, in how we live our lives. So, for example, there's a reason why we don't drive 100 miles per hour down Veterans Parkway and blow through stoplights and weave in and out of, of traffic. At least there should be a reason why we don't do those things. It's because, uh, number one, we, we shouldn't want to harm anyone. But also because we don't want to be put in jail for reckless driving. We don't want to have our license taken away, which would definitely happen if we were to, to do that. We're governed by many things in our, in our lives, many authorities in our lives. We're, we're governed by posted speed limit signs, these little red and green lights at intersections. We're governed by a, a right fear of police officers who enforce those laws. Many of us have employers that we work for, so, so there's an expectation that's placed on an employee for how, how you work and how you interact with others, what the expectations are, and if you fail to meet those expectations, there can be a, a, a moment where you're reprimanded, there can even be a moment where you are removed from your position. There's authority in our lives. College students here have professors that they have to submit to. They have to do the work that's required of the class as as printed in the syllabus, regardless of whether you want to do it or not. We're even governed by by natural forces in God's creation. So for instance, gravity plays a a pretty big role in our lives. Uh, We can try our best to to defy gravity by getting on an airplane and heading to different parts of the world, but let's just... Be honest, we're not defying gravity really whatsoever. If that engine stops working on that plane, you're defying nothing in that moment. Uh, a couple months ago, um, my, my wife Amy, for my birthday, she got me a, a flight lesson. I love going flying and, and it's always been kind of this, this dream of mine to have like a pilot's license someday and so, uh, so she got me this, this flight lesson. So I got to go up in the air and, and fly over Bloomington Normal with this flight instructor. It was, it was awesome. But before we got in, into this plane that we were going to fly around in, the an instructor numerous times walked me around the plane and told me, what the, here's what we're going to do if the engine stops. It, it's pretty amazing what this plane can do, Like because this plane actually had a, a parachute that could deploy. So if the, the engine stops, you pull this lever that he went over multiple times, you pull this lever. If I become incapacitated, you pull this lever and this, this parachute will, will deploy. He kept talking about it over and over and over again. I'm like, we're not going to have to do this, right? Like he kept pushing this, this, this parachute that would allow the plane to float to the, to the ground where you could land at least somewhat safely in case of emergency. And he said that the designers of this plane actually began the design of this plane beginning with the parachute. So, so as I was thinking about that, even this week, the designers and engineers of this plane actually started the design of it based on the reality of, gov- of, of gravity winning out every single time. Like they sat in a room and said, let's build a plane that won't crash if the engine stops because gravity is going to win. It's the primary authority in that moment. See, authority plays a significant role in our lives, and our lives are shaped by those that are in authority and, and, and our lives can be, be harmed or be enriched by those in authority. But it's harmed when those in authority oppress or abuse the power that they have. Well, we've come here now to a unit of Scripture today that addresses the authority of Jesus. The word authority, if you caught it, was, is the Greek word here, exousia, and it's used four times in this passage. The, the Greek word exousia, it's a word that means freedom or liberty to act. It means power or influence over a domain. So so it's having the the right to act, to exercise your will, to exercise force, to determine, to decide. That's exousia. That's authority. And it's the the authority that Jesus had been exercising. If you remember from last week, the passage we walked through, he goes into the temple grounds and and, and turns over the, the money changers' tables. He's exercising force. He's making decisions. He's exercising his exousia, absolute authority, a divine authority. In fact, what's Jesus even say in Matthew 28 to his disciples as he commissions him into this world? He says this. He says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what gives Jesus the right to claim authority over our lives? And if Jesus has ultimate authority over all creation, if he has all authority has been given to him, then, then what's that mean for us? How does that shape our lives? Moreover, what are the, what are the reasons why, why many reject his authority? Even though doing so is pointless because as Philippians 2 would say, there's coming a day when every knee is going to bow. There's coming a day when every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one who reigns. But what does this mean for us? See, it still doesn't mean, though, that many today in our world, and even some, many maybe even, who claim to be a follower of Jesus, do actually still reject the authority of Christ. In our world today, some do so through both word and deed, but, but many reject His authority not so much through their words, meaning they're not maybe verbalizing their, their rejection of Christ's authority, but their actions and how they live their lives Reveal this rejection of Christ's authority. It's kind of like we said a couple weeks ago. People are okay with Jesus as long, as long as Jesus stays on the periphery of our lives. We're okay with Jesus as long as he stays over there. We're okay with, we're okay with a Jesus in our flesh. We're okay with a Jesus that we can manage. We're okay with a Jesus being a, maybe a component of our lives, but, but one that we can still control, one that we can still manipulate to do what we want. But Jesus cannot be managed. (laughs) If anything's been clear throughout the Gospel of Mark, is Jesus is not going to be managed. He walks into the temple grounds, this sacred place, and drives people out, turns over money changers' tables. Like he cannot be controlled. He cannot be managed. Jesus will not just take a part of your life. Jesus comes and says, I want all of it. In fact, he's the one who then calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. He says, take up your cross, right? Let's go, every bit of you. I want it all. That's what Jesus claims. That's what Jesus demands of us. And this makes us uncomfortable. Makes us uncomfortable. And so what, what, what happens within even church life is we, we, we instead go down the lane of striving to be religious and we strive to be good people. And so we're, we're okay over here with the religious rituals and the customs and the, the, the comfortable rhythms that we can, that we can, that we can do because we can fit into that mold and it's manageable over here. We can fit this kind of life within our schedules because our schedules sometimes come primary. So we want everything else to fit within what we want to do. But the moment that Jesus comes into our lives and begins to press on us, right? What have we seen through, through Mark so far? When he calls on us to, to repent, right? Turn from your sin. When he calls on you to forgive those who have offended you, those who have hurt you. <clears throat> when he calls on on us to give sacrificially when he calls on us to forsake family and friends and careers and status and wealth and to behold him and to cling to him as the, the greatest treasure to behold in all the universe, we, we so often maybe respond similarly to, to how these religious leaders responded. Who are you to tell me what I'm to do? What gives you the right to demand what I should do with my life? What, what gives you the right to demand things from me? What we're going to see today as we examine and study this text out is that we're going we're to respond to Jesus' authority in one of two ways. In fact, the authority of Jesus demands one of two responses. Either he is the one true God rightfully deserving of our full allegiance, or he's a fraud that can just be ignored. That There's really no in-between there. He either is God who demands all of us and we rightly follow and give him all that we are, or he's a fraud and he can be just ignored. Many years ago, C.S. Lewis, he said something very similar. He said the claims that Jesus made about himself are just too extravagant. They're too far-reaching to just be ignored or to even claim that he was just a good teacher and nothing else. He, he goes on in his book to say we can't just sweep his claims about Jesus under, under the rug. We can't ignore him. We have to do, he said, something with them. You have to do something with them. And, and what we do with these claims of Jesus really determines in how we're going to live our lives. So, so he goes on and says Jesus is either a, a liar or, or he's a, a lunatic. And, and he goes on to say if he's, if he's neither of those two things, though, then that must mean that he is in fact Lord. So so if he's a fraud or a liar, then just ignore what he says. It has no bearing on our life anyway. But, but if it's true what Jesus claims and says about himself, if all authority has been given to him, if he is divine, if he is Lord, then we have to do something with that because the, uh, the, the ramifications of that reality, of that truth, are far sweeping and far affecting our lives. And so we have to first come to grips with that reality. Is Jesus, in fact, God? Is he Lord? Is he king of kings? Now, my assumption here this morning, with with majority of us in this room here, is that the majority of us in this room gathered today, either listening to me here or if you're online following along today, my, my assumption is that most of us would affirm that truth about Christ, that yes, he is God. Yes, he is Lord. We've sung it today. We've, we've proclaimed it already today. This is who our God is. This is what he is. So, so I, w- I would assume that that's the majority of us in this room here this morning. But yet, if you have not yet come to grips with that truth about Jesus, that he is King of kings, Lord of lords, that he is the one who has all authority given to him, if he is the one who makes us right with God, and if you have not submitted to this King of kings yet, then this is the starting point for you. You may know certain facts about Jesus, but, but you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And there's a difference between knowing information and having your life transformed by it. See, Jesus, as I said, isn't interested in you just giving him parts of your life. He's not interested in you just knowing facts about his life. But he calls on us to repent, which means to turn, to turn, to deny our lives, to turn from sin and turn in faith to him as the only one who can save you, who can reconcile you back to God the Father, and then to joyfully and gladly follow him with your entire being. This is the starting point for you. And then for all of us here then, we need to then examine our lives against a backdrop of scripture. See, though many of us in here this, this morning would say, yes, Jesus is Lord, we still need to then see I, I, is my life, our life, lives being lived more like a, a functional Pharisee, rather than a true follower of Christ. See, the religious leaders here, they've, they've made it clear from really day one, since the beginning of this gospel, they have no intention of, of following Jesus. They've, they've made it very clear from the beginning, they have zero intention of, of submitting to his authority, and in fact, we see here even a rejection of his divine authority. In, in verse 27 of this text, Jesus here is once again, he's walking in the temple, The majority of this week, as he's heading toward the cross, which is where this this end of this week is going to to finish, he's spending his days on the temple grounds. More than likely here, Jesus was walking around one of the several porches that surround the temple grounds. And as he's walking here, he's approached by, by members of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was was the supreme council that was in charge of all Jewish affairs, right? It was this group that was consisting of, of priests and these religious teachers, these experts in the law who would meet and they would make decisions on, on these legal matters with all these religious and political and social ramifications. This group, the Sanhedrin, they had a lot of power. They had a lot of influence and they had a lot of authority that, were, that was over the lives of the Jewish people. And so Jesus has come into their domain. He's come into their house as they thought it was to be. And Jesus has ruffled some feathers, to say it lightly. He has come in day one and flipped tables over. He's attacked their bottom line. He's attacking their prophets. He's driving people out. He's calling them out in front of everybody. He's doing this on their turf in their minds. And so even though since Mark 3, the religious leaders have been trying to find ways to destroy Jesus, Jesus' actions in these preceding days in the temple where, where I said he's just made a scene and exercised his divine authority, man, he has them seriously perturbed. His actions have alerted now these members of this supreme council. And so now they're beginning to come to Jesus here. And over the next few chapters, we're going to see Jesus is going to have at least four or five more uh, confrontations with them as they're trying to find these ways to trip him up. They're trying to find ways in which they can accuse him so they can arrest him and bring him before trial, bring him before the court, have him destroyed, have him mocked, have him belittled, have him executed. So these members of the Sanhedrin, Mark says in verse 27, the chief priests and the scribes and the the elders, they're coming to him and they ask a question, but they really have no interest in hearing the answer to it. But they ask in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to to do them? And again, they're they're referencing the overturning of the tables in the temple the day before. And they want to know, or at least are asking, what gives you the right to do this? Now again, these religious leaders have no interest in hearing Jesus out whatsoever. They're only hoping he says something foolish that they can now use to accuse him of blasphemy so they can arrest him and destroy him. Their minds are already made up concerning Jesus. He's a threat. He's a threat to their authority and he's got to be destroyed. This, this really comes to the first reason why, why so many people reject the authority of Jesus, and thus refuse to follow him. His first point is that we don't follow Jesus because we don't want to submit to his authority. You could also add in there that so often our minds are already they're already made up. In fact, I would add from Scripture: apart from the intervening grace of God at work in our lives, this is the default state of every human being before God—that there is no desire to pursue Him. That we have no intrinsic desire within our flesh to know him, to follow him, to submit to him, to even seek him out. Romans 1 would say that creation gives us loud and clear evidence. It's screaming all of creation is that there is a God, right? There is a God that we are held accountable to. Yet our sinful nature, Romans 1 would say, suppresses that truth, pushes that truth away. We don't want to submit to that. We don't want to recognize it. We ignore it. We try to sweep it away. We push it down because we know what the ramifications are of a creator, right? It means that we're accountable. It means that we're not the supreme authority in our lives. Two chapters later in Romans 3, it says that no one seeks for God. In Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul, we see even more clearly the fact that, that we don't want to submit to God because we'd, we'd rather just be our own authority, Listen to Ephesians 2 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, what's that text say? says we wanted to live in the passions of our flesh. right? Paul says we wanted to carry out, we wanted to live out the desires of the body and the mind, meaning we wanted to be an authority all to ourselves. This is our natural state. This is who we are apart from the, the grace of God. See, apart from God's intervening grace, we have, we have no intention, no desire, no, no, no wanting to submit to Christ. These religious leaders, they had no desire to know Jesus, to know who he was. They had no desire to bring their lives under, under his authority. They're driving desires. They approach him here in the, in the temple grounds. Their desire is to, how do we get this guy out of the picture? How do we get him out? Because he's a threat to our way of life. He's a threat to how we're ex- exercising our authority. Rather than them examining Jesus' teaching and life and actions against the scriptures, which they they knew, to to see, is he really who he claims to be? Their minds as they come to him are already made up. He's that threat. and has to be destroyed. Yet even in our pursuit, even in our pursuit of autonomous authority, we're, we're still always beholden to something. That's the reality. That's the reality. We're always beholden to something. Now, I just quoted Ephesians 2 just a a second ago, and in it we saw humanity's sinful desire to pursue the, the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, right? We want to be this authority to ourselves. We want to do what makes us feel good, and nobody else has the right to tell me otherwise. And if you do, you're a threat that needs to be destroyed. We see that all over our culture, do we not? But we're still beholden to something. See, did you notice what it said in verse 2? Paul says, you are followers of the world. You are followers of the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at, at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul, Paul's saying, yeah, you, you want to do what you want to do, but you're still enslaved. He's saying, you're, you're followers of the world. You're followers of Satan, of evil. You're held captive by it. There's no such thing, when we really think about it, there's no such thing as true autonomous authority unto ourselves, according to the scriptures. The scriptures actually paint a picture of, of you're either a slave to the world, or you're a slave to Christ. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-two through twenty-three. In case you're like, where's he taking that from? Well, the apostle Paul says in, to the church in Corinth. He says, "For we who once, who, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men." Paul's writing to the church there in Corinth and he's writing to to people who are enslaved physically and saying, if you're a believer now in Christ, you're you're set free in Christ. And then he he writes to those who are not enslaved physically by by men, but he says, "But, but you're now a slave to Christ. And he's saying, so don't go back. Don't go back to slavery of the world. You see the two options. We're either a slave to the world or we're a slave to Christ. Those are the only two options for us. We're either held captive under the authority of the world or we're held captive under the authority of Christ. What we find with with the world, though, is despair and oppression and hopelessness. A philosophy of the world when when suffering comes and when the the deep issues and and dark nights of the soul happen, all the world can do is say, hopefully it won't get any worse. That's all the world can offer you. That's hopelessness. Yet what we find in Christ, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7, is freedom. Freedom. Listen to this, this excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It's a, it's a little lengthy, but it, it is worth the listen. He says this in regard to our freedom found by coming underneath the authority of Christ. Here's what he says. He says, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. I am not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, but how gloriously different are the saints. But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes and every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in. How sad is it? How sad is it that so many, in their attempt to be free, I want to be free. No one has authority over me. No one tells me what to do. So sad in our attempt to be free, we reject the one who can actually truly set them free. That's point one. Second point, we don't follow Jesus because we fail or refuse to recognize clear evidence of his authority. This takes us to verses 29 through 31. So Jesus enters into this this debate, so to speak, with them. And so he says to them, I, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Now I want to be understanding of the religious leaders here to some degree. Uh, them asking for clarification for Jesus' authority wasn't wasn't in essence wrong. So so Jesus doesn't really hold that against them. The fact that they're asking, where does your authority come from? Where he challenges them is is their hearts and their motives behind the question that they're asking. You see, Christianity is not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. It's it's a belief with with mountains of evidence that, that leads us to faith in Christ. Right, we don't we don't know all the answers, but but what evidence we do see regarding who Jesus is is sufficient for for faith to carry us the rest of the way. It, it was Simon Greenleaf; he was one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School. He once set out to examine the resurrection, and 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 he set out to to examine it because he believed after thorough review, careful review, it'd be easy to discount it as only a myth. But Simon Greenleaf came away from this examination of the, go- of the resurrection in the Gospels only to come away saying that the evidence is there. The witnesses in the, the Gospels are reliable. And that he said the resurrection of Jesus, in fact, did happen. He, he later said this regarding the evidence of Christ. He says, a person who rejects Christ may choose to say that I do not accept it. He may not choose to say there is not enough evidence. You see, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 in and, 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 and regard to the, the resurrection of Christ, he said that Jesus, listen, he appeared to many people. And then 1 Corinthians 15 begins to list names. Here's who he appeared to. And then he, and he says many, he appeared to 500 more, and he says, many of whom are still alive. Here's what Paul was saying to that Corinthian church when he was talking about the resurrection of Christ. He's saying, if you're doubting the resurrection, here's who's alive, here's who saw him. Go ask them. Here's where they live. Go see the evidence and come away convinced regarding who Jesus is. See, Jesus' response to the religious leaders here was was a common debating technique among rabbis in that day. So it wasn't out of the ordinary to respond to their question with a question. However, the question that Jesus is asking them is is brilliant because he knows it's it's going to expose their their hearts. He, He knows there's mountains of evidence, but they're choosing to reject it. So he's going after their heart with this question. In asking them this question regarding John the Baptist, Jesus is drawing them to look at the evidence. Look at the evidence of John's ministry who paved the way for Jesus' ministry. You see, the the ministry of John and Jesus were were, were closely connected, and and these ministries were prophesied about centuries before in the scriptures. Both John and, and Jesus did miraculous things, and yet these religious leaders rejected Jesus because in their minds he was just some nobody from Nazareth, they rejected John because he was some nut job in their minds who lived out in the wilderness, who ate locusts. And, and yet they also knew at the same time the people loved them, loved them. So it's created this dilemma for these religious leaders. They, they feared the people, which we're gonna get to in our last point. But we also see them examining evidence and, and clearly setting aside evidence of John's divinely appointed ministry, because it was it was nothing but a threat to their ministry, to their authority. So they, they huddle together. Instead of examining, okay, let's examine the evidence of John. And then let's submit to Christ because John's ministry is this forerunner to Christ's ministry. We'll submit to Christ in authority. All they do is huddle together and figure out a way to weasel their way out of the question. To try and ignore what Jesus was asking. To set it aside. See, it was universally believed and accepted by the people in this day and age, or at that time, that, that John's ministry was from God. And yet they know they had not submitted to it. They didn't listen to John. and Instead, they rejected him, and they stood by as he was executed, as he was beheaded. See, Jesus is brilliant here. His his argument and and how he questioned them exposed their hearts. Here, here in essence, I wrote down what he was arguing. He's saying to them, "My, my claim to authority is based on the possibility of divine appointment from God in heaven. It isn't found by human endorsement. He says, I am I don't need your affirmation. I don't need your permission to do and teach what I have. John was accepted by the people and at the same time also did miraculous things that could only be attributed to the hand of God and yet you still rejected him. And so if you're unwilling, he's looking at these religious leaders and his argument is saying, if you're unwilling to look at the evidence that was put forth by John who paved the path for me, then you're not qualified to judge me either. You're coming here with with." Insincerity. You're coming to me not being honest. You're not actually in pursuit of truth. And that's why he says, I'm not going to tell you then. If you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to tell you. you. You're not interested in hearing the answer. They were unwilling to look at the evidence and be convinced of Jesus' authority because it just meant that they were going to lose their control. For many today, the main issue for so many is, is not maybe necessarily the evidence, but just an unwillingness in their hearts, to see it. Because that would mean they're going to lose control of their idols. It would mean that they would lose control of their life as they have it. If, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is king of kings and lord of lords, if he really has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him, if he really has risen from the grave, right, then that changes everything. And that, we're not going to be the same because of it. That affects us. Yet sadly, what, what so many do in the face of clear evidence as they close their eyes, they plug their ears, and they scream like a kid, la, 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 I don't see it, I don't hear you, I don't want it, keep going away, I wanna go on with my life as normal. Don't miss Jesus in all this. See the evidence of who he is, what he has done. Submit to his authority and find life. Lastly, point number three, we don't follow Jesus because we fear man more than we fear God. We see this fear of man in verse 32. So in their, their discussion with one another, they say, but, but shall we say from man, regarding John's ministry, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a, a, a prophet. So they, they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Fear is a powerful emotion, isn't it? It's a powerful emotion. Ever since I was a little kid, I have been terrified of snakes. Terrified of snakes. Uh, First time I remember seeing a snake was in our back alley of our house. And I don't even think it was alive. I think it was dead. But I stumbled upon it and I just ran. Like just ran. That was like my first instinct. Run away as fast as I can. My kids think my fear of snakes is hilarious. So anytime we take them to the zoo, right? Seeing the snakes, that's the first thing they want to do. Right, and would take me in those 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 rooms. Right, my son a few years back at school had put together this project. I was supposed to do this project on any animal, any animal, right, any animal in all of God's creation, right. And he chose the largest snake in the world just because he knew he knew. going to be pictures of this snake laying around the house, and I have to be, I have to have to look at it as he worked on his project. I don't like looking at them. I, I don't like seeing pictures of them. I don't really like talking about them. This is making me uncomfortable even right now. I don't like talking about snakes. It's making me uneasy. My wife said, I have to share this story, all right? So I wrote, this, um, I wrote this sermon. I finished this sermon on Friday. Friday night, I had a nightmare that there was a snake circling the church campus and I couldn't get in the door to preach this sermon. Terrified of it. She's like, oh, you got you to share that. Like I woke up from a dead sleep, like breathing heavy. Because I asked her, was I breathing heavy? And she's like, no, but like, I, was like, like, I was like panicking because I couldn't get in here. I started to run and start started chasing me. Like I'm terrified of snakes. Fear is a powerful emotion, powerful emotion. And one of the greatest fears we have as human beings is, is the fear of others, the fear of what they think, the fear of how they're going to respond, the fear of not being accepted, the book of Proverbs says that the fear of man, though, is a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And Mark makes it clear here that these religious leaders, with all of their power and all of their influence and all of their self-perceived authority, they were, they were terrified of the people. So they give Jesus' cowardly non-answer to his question. We don't know. We don't know. They knew. They saw the works of Jesus. They knew the Scriptures. If they would just have stopped and opened their eyes... they they would have recognized that Jesus really is the Messiah. But their desire for power and for control and for authority themselves drove them to their idol. As one author says, they they would rather have kept their position and live a lie than submit to Christ and walk in the truth. That's sadly so many of us. We'd rather live a lie, live how I want to live, than submit to Christ and walk in freedom and truth. Over the years, sadly, been able to have a front row seat to the destruction that certain addictions have on people. Years ago, I lost a good friend of mine to suicide, a friend who had struggled with substance abuse for, for many years, a friend who, had, who was actually starting to see change for the better, but, but just couldn't handle the stress and fear of, of relapsing, the, the weight of responsibility that was on him. So he took his own life. A couple of years ago, I had a, a very dear pastor friend of mine in Indiana lose his life because he had been struggling with alcohol addiction. He was hiding it, and it cost him his life. We've walked with some in our community who would, who would rather hang on to their addictions, even though it is absolutely destroying their lives, even though it is absolutely destroying their families, their friends, their jobs. They would rather hold on to the addiction, what they want, than to give it up. To fight it, to put to death, to find a more joy filled, healthy life. But the addiction, that sin, has such a strong hold on them that they're resistant and they push away those that are seeking to come alongside and help. Even though they can see and observe with their own eyes what their life could be just by observing the lives of those who are coming around trying to help them, who want to walk with them, but they say, No, I want this. They'd rather live in that lie, live in their Their perception of I have control over my life than to submit to Christ and find life sad thing. Instead, what we see a lot of times is people just say, Leave me alone. This is what I want. This is what I want. It's most depressing and sad things to observe. These religious leaders had the God of the universe in front of them. You think about that. Like they're talking to the one who made them. They had to talk with him face to face. Instead of seeing who he was, instead of finding eternal life in him, instead of submitting to his authority and finding life, they want to hold on to their feeble, finite power and authority. This life, Scripture says, is is like a vapor. Our life is here and it's gone. It's here and it's gone. The decisions we make in this life matter, though, for all of eternity. And far too many people are are making the decision to to live solely for this vapor of a life, to hold on to their illusion of control. And that's what power and control is in our minds. It's an illusion. And they're forfeiting their souls for all of eternity. If you've never trusted Christ for salvation, if you've never submitted to his authority, the question for you this morning is, what's keeping you from doing so? Which of these three reasons that we've walked through is holding you back? Is it your desire for control and and authority? Be honest, as I just said, how much control of your life do you really have? Is it the lack of evidence? If so, then I challenge you to, to truly and honestly and genuinely search for truth, and you will find it. You will find it. Is it the fear of others? Are you fearful of what following Christ will mean for you, for your your friends, your relationships at work. Well, yeah, following Jesus requires sacrifice. The the Gospel of Mark is not hidden that fact whatsoever. It's not easy. You'll be mocked, you'll be laughed at by the world, but you'll finally find what your heart and your soul are longing for. You'll find joy and peace and eternal life. Brother and sister, does your life reflect that Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority over you? Do the decisions that we make for ourselves, for our families, reveal Jesus as Lord? See, just as gravity keeps us firmly planted on this earth, the authority of Jesus should be the spiritual gravitational pole of our lives how we talk to one another, treat one another, serve one another, love one another, how we steward our money, how we send and support others for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations, how we go ourselves, how we love the outcast, how we care for the hurting, how we, how we speak for those who can't speak for themselves, how we serve our city and our community, how we submit to God's word as we read it and devour it. Every aspect of our life, daily life, should find with it the string that's attached to the authority of Jesus. There should be not one aspect of our life disconnected from his authority. He wants it all. And the beauty of all of it is that the more that we examine the life of Jesus, the more we begin to see how good he is, how lovely he is, how beautiful he is, how he cares for you, how he loves the unlovable. The more we see of Jesus, the more we're going to be drawn to him. So are you drawn to him, his authority? Are we pursuing Christ? Are we submitting to him? Let's pray. God, would you help us to see you for who you are? God, to lay down our lives underneath your authority, underneath your reign, your rule. You are the king. You are Lord. Help us to have even a a renewed understanding of what those, those words even mean in our lives. God, forgive us for when we so flippantly sing these songs to proclaim these truths. Forgive us when we so flippantly uh, speak these truths or or, or, or affirm these truths, but yet then our lives show no reality that we believe it. So God, we we need to seriously examine our lives against the backdrop of Scripture. May we not live as a a functional Pharisee, but as a true follower of Christ who demands all our lives Father, I pray for those in this room here or those that are listening online, wherever they may be hearing the, my, my voice in this moment that have not yet submitted to your authority, who have not turned from their sin, who have not turned in faith to, to, to see and behold the goodness of who God is, to be redeemed and reconciled and saved through, through no work of their own, but through the cross of Christ and Christ alone. This is the starting point for them. God, would your spirit work in such a mighty way in their hearts in this moment that they would turn in faith to you, and be justified. God, help us now as we see and apply these truths, God, to confess, to meditate upon this, God. Help us to see you in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Do something a little bit different here as we close. I kind of save this application time more for this moment here. I want to give us a, a few moments here in, in just a second to, to to pray and confess and meditate, to think upon these truths. But I want to, give us some specific ways in which we need to examine our lives against a backdrop of scripture right so if if christ is our authority then we need to see is is every aspect of our life submitted to his authority can we see every aspect of what we do and how we live connected to the authority of christ so i i began today even by saying listen the, the starting point for some may be salvation If you've not yet submitted to Christ, Acts 16, 31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so this might be the starting point for you to say, I need to turn, I need to believe. I need to trust in him. And so maybe this is this moment for you to say, this is how I first submit to the authority of Christ by by by, by stopping trying to earn and work of myself. Again, that's, that's just you thinking you're an authority to yourself, that you can do it right, that you can gain acceptance before the God of the universe, you can't, you can't. Our only hope is, is Jesus. So maybe for you, the first step is, is, is turning to him and resting in him and submitting to his reign and rule over your life. For others in this room here, maybe it's baptism. Maybe the next step for you is, is, is believers baptism, that you have turned from your sin, but yet, if you have not yet been baptized, then Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, Scripture calls on you to be baptized. It's a step of obedience. It symbolizes that we have died to ourselves and we've been raised to walk in newness of life, that we are not who we once were. We are in Christ, and every bit of us belongs to him. So if you've not been baptized, if you're putting that off, maybe this is that moment for you to say, okay hey, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to submit to his authority, the authority of scripture. I'm going to be baptized and proclaim what Christ has done in my life. We have a baptism class today, right after the service. Come, be a part of that. Hear what scripture teaches about baptism, the beauty of it, what symbolizes. For others in here, maybe it's killing sin. Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you. So maybe for some of us in here, we've been hiding sin. We've been flirting with sin. We're just treating it lightly. And maybe right now is the time for us to say, I no, I gotta get serious about putting the sin to death. I've got to let the authority of Christ reign over me. That I gotta see him behold him as more beautiful than what the world offers and what this temptation offers and what sin offers me, which is only death and destruction. So maybe for some of us in here, we need to have our sin exposed, to bring it into the light. Maybe even at the end of the service, we'll be up front to pray and and minister however we can. But maybe for some, you just need to come and like, I need to confess my sin. And let's work on putting it to death and you'll find life and joy. Maybe you need to kill sin. Maybe for some, it's scripture reading. Psalm 119.11, we're not gonna be able to fight sin if we don't store up God's word in our heart. So we would not sin against him. So maybe for some of us, like we just don't, we don't even like read this. We don't study it. We don't examine it. We don't let it press in on us. And so maybe for some, like, okay, I need need to first come underneath the authority of God's word. I need to hear what Jesus even says. And if you're like, I I don't even know how to read it, how to study it, then then come talk with us. What we'll do is we'll, we'll pair you with somebody. We'll partner you with somebody. This is what the church does, right? We grow together. So we'll connect you with someone where you can grow together in God's word. But maybe there you need to come underneath the authority of God. Maybe for some, you need to get in community. Maybe you've been sitting on the fringes for far too long, not engaged in the life of the church. Right? When God saves, he saves you to himself and into a community of believers. And so we live life together. We share life together. Acts 2.42 says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And so maybe you've just been on the fringes for far too long, just, just treating church as a hobby, something you do on the weekends, but maybe now it's time to say, okay, Christ calls me to more. Right? Community with brothers and sisters who will... Who will push me and encourage me and I can shape and encourage them as well and so if that's where you are that you need to submit to the authority of Christ let that be the time where you do that maybe for some it's evangelism sharing sharing the gospel with your neighbor with your friends 2nd Corinthians 5 we're ambassadors for Christ God's making his appeal through us Right? So maybe maybe it's like my, my neighbors, my co-workers they don't even know I'm a follower of Christ. And I'm fearful of men. I'm fearful of what will happen. Maybe this for you is a time where, okay, I need to submit to the authority of Christ. And I need to start being sent ones, right, out into the community, out into the world, being a light and hope of the gospel in the midst of darkness. So let us come and walk with you through that. But maybe that's where you need to submit. Cross-cultural missions, maybe, some, maybe God's calling some of you to go. Maybe God's calling some of you to go and you've just been pushing it down. No, I don't want to give up my comfy life. Come, let's talk, right? Come, let's work through this and be equipped and, and trained to then be sent to go to the nations. If, if anything, all of us should have a, a love for the nations. Psalm 67, four, let the nations be glad, sing for joy. Maybe for some of us in here, we just need to submit to having uh, God's heart for the nations, for the gospel to go out. Maybe lastly here, maybe for us, maybe for you, it's, it's just disciple-making. Matthew 28, 19, what's Jesus say? He uses his authority. It says, go make disciples of all nations. Teach them. Teach them to, to observe and know what I've, what I've commanded you. We are a disciple-maker. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple-maker. And so maybe for some of us, again, we've been just too disengaged from this, this commission to go make disciples. Church, I'm going to call us to this idea that we've got to, this reality, this truth from Scripture, that we've got to disciple one another. We've got to go make disciples. The older older saints in here, the younger saints, the younger generation, we need you. We need you to invest in the younger generation, to teach them, to model for them what godliness looks like, to help them. And if you're like, I don't know who they are, then I'm going to encourage you. Like, Scroll through the directory. Be praying, God, God, just impress my heart. Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to connect with? Look across the room right now, and Spirit, bring someone to your mind. Go to them at the end of the service and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. God just brought me your name, your, your face to my heart. Like, let's grab coffee. I wanna hear your story. I wanna get to know you, right? Older saints, we need you to invest in the younger generation. Younger generation, don't wait for the older saints to come to you. Do the same thing. Pursue, grow, make disciples. This is where we need to submit to the authority of Christ. There's probably multiple other ways and reasons that we need to submit, but for the next minute or two, would you just bow your heads? Would you pray? Would you see how the Spirit moves? And then let's stand and let's sing and let's respond to His Word.